Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie Monday morning, the 12th of February. Good morning. With much debate and discussion from now till 11am, this is Michael Reed on LMFM. The Israeli Prime Minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, says his army will take the next stage of its offensive to the city of Rafah. Rafah now has a population of 1.4 million people, most of whom have fled war in other parts of Gaza, hoping to find refuge there. Now, though, they are targets in tents in the mud with nowhere to go. I am particularly worried by reports that the Israeli military intends to focus left on Rafah. Half of Gaza's population is now crammed into Rafa. They have nowhere to go. They have no homes and they have no hope. They are living in overcrowded makeshift shelters in unsanitary conditions without running water, electricity and adequate food supplies. And all of these underscores the need for full respect for international humanitarian law, including the protection of civilians, and ensuring that essential needs are met. That's the Secretary General of the United Nations, Antonio Guterres. Indeed, uh, Rafa is already under attack and the Ministry of Health in Gaza is saying that 67 Palestinians were killed in Israeli air and sea attacks on Rafa overnight. It is the most frightening prospect in a conflict that has already seen over 28,000 people killed in Gaza. Now the prospect of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of lives being lost as a result of uh, the Israeli offensive. This indiscriminate killing has posed very serious questions for many of us in terms of how we go about our daily lives, whether it's shopping or indeed looking to politicians to bear influence on what is happening in an event that is causing so much Uh, problems in the world. Uh, The indiscriminate killing uh, was certainly uh, a question uh, for Ireland's women's basketball team uh, and uh, as you know the team went ahead uh, and played Israel in Riga on Thursday. They lost the match 87-57 but I don't think that's what it'll be remembered for. The Minister for Sport is Thomas Byrne. He joins us now and a very good morning to you and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme this morning. The women's basketball team were put in a, a most difficult decision were, or position of bigger burden, were, were they not, uh, and indeed accused of being anti-Semitic? Well, yeah, there's no doubt. I mean, the, the accusations from, from Israel in the week up to the match were very, very wrong. I think the posing of the Israeli team with, with soldiers was just completely provocative um, and, you know, really just added to a really bad atmosphere before that game. For the previous few months, though, the, the Irish basketball team has been under incredible pressure uh, to somehow pull this game or not go ahead with it and basically pull Irish basketball or women's basketball out of competition for five years. So there has been a lot of pressure on them over the last few months. And m- m- I mean, ov- obviously, I mean, the, the priority for the government is to make sure that we can bring to bear our influence at international level to put a stop to what's going on and what you just described mm. uh, in Rafa and everywhere else uh, that's being attacked at the moment. Um, but I, I'm not at the same time saying that Irish teams should start pulling out of basically one after the other sports competitions because that's effectively what's, what would have happened uh, if the Irish women's basketball team hadn't taken part 
uh, in that match last week. They would have been out for a few years. And then there's another match coming up now in a few weeks, um, another game against mm. Israel in a different sport. Uh, the pressure would be on there. There was the Labour Party were looking for Ireland to pull out of the Eurovision Song Contest. Would they, because Israel was taking part, would they, I, I assume someone would, ask for us to pull out of the Olympics uh, because Israel are part of it. Or indeed, uh, the UEFA Nations uh, Cup, hmm. which the draw was on last week, Israel is in that pot. I heard nobody asking for it. the Irish men's soccer team to pull out of that. Uh, Israel are in the competition. Um, so I, I just worry that there's different standards mm, should, should, should different the, sports. Should, should the soccer team compete against Israel? If, if they're required to do so under UEFA rules, that's right. our position, yes. Like they, well, sorry, I mean, it's a, look, sorry, Michael, the, the first point is it's a matter for them. Um, and then the judgment that they exercise is up to them. And the judgment I assume that they will exercise in all these cases is what is required by their international bodies. Mm. And the international bodies have will make, to be honest, they could end up making all sorts of different decisions. You could find some uh, where, where, where it happens that Israel are pulled out or... In some cases, Russia are out of competitions in the Olympics, but they're in other competitions because the international bodies have made particular decisions. Mm. But the Irish government has limited influence over those international bodies. And, you know, I had this in the committee last week where Sinn Féin were asking for Israel to, you know, essentially to boycott Israel. But what, what, what will actually happen is, if we're doing it on our own, is that we'd end up sort of pulling out of every sports competition. Mm. And Israel would still be in them as things currently stand. So people want to make that case, they make they can make it to the international bodies, but okay. generally speaking... But if that's, how the, play, if that's how the players feel, uh, will the Irish government support them? I, I mean, for example, in so, the... Sorry, ba- we will in support the, the players. My, my just, just to finish the question, if I can, team. please, Minister, just to ask the question, if I can. Yeah. In the case of the basketball team, would the government have funded uh, the cost of the fines, €180,000, had it decided to pull out? Well, I don't think we could do that in every case. So, as I said, there's one game last week another game next in a, in a few weeks there, there will be other games if this happens that's not realistic but also the government can do nothing if the basketball team is pulled out of international sport for a few years as a punishment as well as the fine the fine is only one part of it so I could you know if if we find that a sport has to be out of international mm. sport that, that's it I mean, yeah. there's nothing we can do about that I so, know but when you so think of little we, children or innocent men and women for that matter uh, who've fled from the north of Gaza to Rafa in the south uh, now living in tents uh, trying to keep themselves clean must be a day long task uh, living in those conditions let alone looking to the sky to see what's going to fall on top of you uh, it's very hard to think that players would go out and uh, compete against a team uh, that represents the country that is responsible for this, but as you said earlier on, uh, poses with them for photo shots. Yeah, and that was very wrong, what the, what the Israeli team did last week. Um, look, the, the situation in Gaza is f- f- first and foremost on the government's mind. I mean, the tarnish that was very strong this week has been strong with a consistent position since these attacks happened, that Israel had the right to defend itself, but it must be proportionate. Clearly what's happened in recent times is way beyond proportionate, way beyond, mm. uh, to a disgraceful extent, uh, and what's happening there. And we have called consistently for an immediate humanitarian ceasefire. We've been working uh, with international partners to try and bring the consensus round to that. Mm. The consensus has come round to that, but but not 100%. Uh, but a lot of countries have come around to that. Um, so so we're, we're, we're dealing with that and we're doing what we can at international level. But I actually don't see why it's the fault of 
particular Irish sports teams, because that's what would end up happening is that they would be pulling themselves out, not just of matches, but potentially, depending on the sport, out of international competition for a few years. Is there, is there um, another so, option? I mean, could uh, the basketball players have turned up on Thursday and simply not played, simply looked the other way, huddled in a circle uh, on their half of uh, the pitch, if you like, uh, so that they fulfilled the criteria of turning up for the game, but didn't compete. Look, the, the bottom line is, and I've been consistent, consistent on this, our, our support is for our sports team. So I support the Irish women's basketball team and I wish them well uh, and I want them to do well and I want them to compete at the highest international levels. I don't think it's fair on them that they should have to navigate uh, the waters of international politics and international concerns. That's a matter for the government and the government has that in hand and we're doing what we can at every level, including giving active support uh, to the people of Gaza. But I think it's wrong, on the other hand, what some in the opposition seem to be approaching is calling us, calling on us to pull out of, it has to be said, certain sports fixtures. Other, other, other competitions, like the Eurovision was targeted, there was big press release that gets you a lot of traction on social media. But the same people in the Labour Party did not mention the UEFA Nations League Cup that Ireland and Israel were in the same draw last week. They didn't mention that because, of course, the Ireland men's football team is too important for, for, for someone and they wouldn't like to criticise that. But they target particular events where they think to get a lot of um, popularity in social media. Mm. Let's be consistent about this, is what I'm saying. Mm. And my consistency is that as a matter for the international the international sporting organisations and the Irish government then deals with the international politics, the humanitarian, the serious humanitarian concerns in Gaza, and we are doing that. Mm. As the Minister for Sport, uh, what engagement have you had with the sporting organisations in relation to Israel competing? Well, we, we, we generally speaking don't um, engage with the international sporting organisations on these matters. I mean, we have some engagement with them. Uh, we have um, we have engagements with other sports ministers from time to time if you can get consensus on particular issues. Um, but all the time, even when quite a number of sports ministers made statements about Russia, mm. all of those statements said that the decisions needed to be made by the international sports organisations. And we also were very, very clear when there was all these debates about Russia coming into the Olympics, that there would be no question of boycotts uh, of the Olympics. That, that has never arisen. Um, so we want to make sure that international sports organisations work, obviously, on a, they work on, a, I suppose, an even keel. They work um, fairly, properly, in a non-corrupt way. Mm. Um, but our influence over them uh, isn't as strong as maybe we would like. And that, that is simply the reality of it. I have seen that already uh, in relation to some sports. Um, so I think our duty, first and foremost, is to support our own teams, navigate those waters. Um, there were certainly some serious concerns, for example, about the International uh, Boxing Association, um, not just about the, the participation and funding of it by Russia uh, and, and Russian entities, Gazprom, for example, but also about various issues in that organisation in terms of the fairness of the competition uh, over the years. And we certainly would have supported efforts and do support efforts to establish a new international organisation. We've met people there. Mm. But I think you find as an individual government, your influence is very, very limited. Mm. And in fact, when the when the Irish Amateur Boxing Association took a decision not to fight against Russians because of the war in Ukraine, yeah. um, the pressure was actually the other way. People were on to me, why is the government stopping this when in fact the government had said 
that we're not asking for anyone to do a boycott. Mm. Uh, and opinions changed then. But the pressure was actually coming from some politicians giving out about the government uh, mm. asking for particular mm. games to boycott it, even though the government wasn't saying that at all. Uh, I think you're probably right, or it appears uh, to be the case that you are right, that uh, there's uh, little interest in the argument that most Irish people would make in relation to the Israeli offensive of Gaza. Uh, why are we unique? Because uh, the issue with the basketball team or the men's soccer team or any other sporting body is pretty much mirrored by the political situation in that we are kind of a lone voice. Uh, I think a lot of people have been very critical of the Irish government for not being strong enough but the reality of it is is that the Irish government has been stronger than most countries in the statements that it's made about the Israeli uh, offensive. Uh, why is it, do you think, that there's so much empathy for Palestinians in this country if there isn't any empathy at all, uh, as seems to be the case in many countries? I wouldn't say there's no empathy in other countries uh, at all. Um, we, we've, we've adopted, I mean, as you said, we've been subject to a lot of criticism from the far left in Ireland. I, I don't know how far they go, but our position has been really, really clear. I, I was on the week in politics the day after this, uh, the, 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 the attack by Hamas happened in Israel. And we've been absolutely consistent since day one in relation to that, that we support the right of Israel to exist. We support the right of Israel to self-defense, but it must be proportionate. And the fears that I would have had at that time and that a lot of people would have had that this would go way out of hand uh, seem to have come true. But we've been totally consistent about that. It is to the credit of the Irish government. And we, we get our influence not by being a big military power, not by being a very big country, but by being in the room and talking, negotiating, using diplomacy, using our diplomats all around mm. the world um, and our strong voice. We make we make that case. But, you know, I think this idea that we pull out of things because we haven't got our way. We get our way by talking and constantly talking, trying to persuade. And what's happened actually since then uh, is that people, other countries, not all of them, but other countries in the European Union have come closer uh, to our way of thinking. Uh, and I think that we will continue this diplomacy uh, in relation to the people of Gaza. Um, our biggest problem, I think most people's biggest problem is with the Israeli government and the way they're handling this. And mm. Israel is a democracy and there are people in Israel who are very strongly opposed to what's going on at the moment. They feel they feel the need to be secure. It is absolutely not clear to any of us as to why they need to do what they're doing at the moment to remain secure. Uh, is uh, is it in our DNA, the, though, do you think, Minister? Is a, a country that was invaded and uh, oppressed for centuries by the British, uh, is it in our, our DNA that we understand the plight of the Palestinians in a way that other countries don't? I think that's that's the case, but it's, it's also the case that historically as well, there was a huge amount of sympathy for the Jewish people as well in Ireland, after particularly after the Holocaust. So I think the Irish view, and even if you look at opinion polls, is very, very nuanced. Uh, I think we, we were actually the first. Brian Lennon Sr., when he was foreign minister, was the first person to put forward the two-state solution. Now, every day that goes by, that two-state solution gets more difficult. But there is it is the only situ uh, solution to this conflict. And that's another example of where we've put forward a policy uh, and gradually countries have come around to it. And even here, Biden and Anthony Blinken, the US Secretary of State, 
talking about this as well, that how difficult it is, but it still must be uh, the focus of our of what we want. And that is very, very difficult with, with current uh, Israeli government policies and the actions, of course, of settlers in the West Bank mm. and the potential for settlers in Gaza, which certainly cannot be countenanced in any way. Yeah, well, they're already planning to move back there, in. Well, some of them are talking about it, yeah. yeah uh, and, uh, of course, you talk about the American president, uh, St. Patrick's Day around the corner. Uh, I'm sure that uh, that's going to go ahead and the traditional... Uh, meeting and sharing the bowl of shamrock but it is an opportunity uh, how do you expect the Taoiseach Leo Varadkar to use that opportunity to influence American policy on Israel's position Israel's position well again we we don't get our power and influence in the world by, by walking out of rooms or by boycotting, especially one of our strongest allies and friends, which is not just the United States, but particularly the Biden administration. Um, so there's no doubt that we will speak uh, honestly and frankly, and I think we can do that to Joe Biden. And indeed, on other issues that you'd never even hear about, we talk honestly and frankly to our friends, to the United States, and they do the same to us. This happens all the time. Um, and they're not quite where we are. Uh, in terms of our policy at the moment in relation to Gaza. But Biden has been very strong uh, talking about the situation in Rafa as well, and I, I welcome that. And I do welcome as well the fact that when Anthony Blinken, the US Secretary of State, went to Israel last week, he also went to see uh, the Palestinian government as well and reiterated the support for the two-state solution. I think that sends an important signal too. Uh, but our first and foremost, our concerns this week are obviously with those people uh, who you know, are already subject to uh, severe attack and that must be stopped and there must be an immediate humanitarian ceasefire. Okay, we'll leave it there for the moment. Thank you indeed for joining us this morning. Thomas Byrne, Minister for Sport of Fianna Fáil TD for me these. Now, if you'd like to make comment on the programme today, as always, we'd love to hear from you. You can call us if uh, you wish uh, to give us your comment yourself uh, by ringing 0419832000. That's 0419832000. Or you can text your comment to 0861800658. It's uh, the same number for WhatsApp messages. That's uh, 086-1800-658 if you want to text or send us a WhatsApp text today email michael at lmfm.ie Michael, Michael Reed on LMFM. Let me bring you some of uh, the comments coming to us uh, this morning. An email that came to us actually on Friday from Alan, who is in Tume in County Galway and says he's a regular listener to this programme. Uh, Alan tells us in his email that he, he's proud to hear people speaking out against clerical child sexual abuse because, he says, I am affected as I was abused as a young boy by a member of the Catholic Christian Brothers while I was in school in Tume. You don't know how much it means to me to hear you getting stuck into this issue and I know you get it, how the legal strategy taken by the heads of the Christian Brothers is only adding more trauma to us, all of us, who were seriously sexually abused and savagely beaten by some of their religious order. They call themselves Christian. I've Googled the word Christian, Alan says, and it says a Christian is someone whose behaviour and heart reflects Jesus Christ. Alan goes on to say, God on the councillors in Drogheda for removing the freedom of Drogheda from Brother Edmund Garvey, who introduced this despicable legal technicality to further delay justice for victims of sexual abuse. 
abuse. Good on the public representatives who speak out unashamedly against all of us who were sexually abused as children. And Alan, thank you indeed for your email, as well as uh, the very kind comments uh, that you made in it about uh, the programme itself. Good to hear from you. Michael at lmfm.ie is our email address. A couple of comments coming to us uh, this morning. Matthew Androhada says, the only thing that Thomas Byrne is interested in is his paycheck. Every week, talk is cheap. Uh, It's playing politics, says Matthew. I don't know if that's very fair at all. Matthew, the Minister was very uh, interested in talking about this issue this morning because uh, there's been a a lot of uh, concern and indeed divided opinion on it. And I think we're all interested in our paycheck at the end of the week. Uh, Lehman Ashburn uh, is uh, equally as unsympathetic, if you like, to the minister saying, poor old Thomas burying his head in the sand and on the fence as always. Thanks uh, for that, uh, Liam and Ashburn again. I'm I'm not sure that that's uh, particularly fair. Um, The minister, as I say, was delighted to talk about the issue, wanted to talk about the issue and wanted to express the government's abhorrence at what's happening in Gaza. Uh, Margaret in touch with us uh, this morning saying, Michael, Netanyahu won't stop until he wipes out all of the Palestinian people. He's worse than Hitler. How could you corral innocent women and children into Rafa? No food, no sanitation. No one condones what Hamas did, but uh, on the 7th of October, uh, uh, it looks like it's an ideal excuse for Netanyahu to wipe out the Palestinians. Thanks uh, for that, uh, for that matter, Margaret, for sending uh, uh, your message. Uh, Deirdre and Kel saying that uh, dogs should not be let loose uh, and running about. Uh, they should be on a lead uh, or under control, Deirdre, is the law. Um, and however you control the dog, as the case may be, but very few fines uh, across the country uh, for the control of dogs. Uh, I'm hoping that we'll be speaking about that a bit later in the programme. But uh, speaking of Rafa and Gaza and what has already been a dreadful war with 28,000 people already dead and now it looks like uh, over a million, close to a million and a half people uh, are... I don't know how else to describe it other than to say they look like uh, goldfish in a barrel for the Israeli army. Uh, There seems to be no hope for them. Uh, Let's hear once again from Antonio Guterres who was asked if there's any hope at all in the region. I had the chance to be uh, once again um, uh, in the end of last week uh, with uh, the Prime Minister of Qatar that uh, was kind enough to visit me after his visit to Washington. And uh, he was hopeful that uh, uh, the negotiations uh, will be able to go on and that those negotiations might lead to a breakthrough in relation both uh, uh, to um, different periods of cessation of hostilities and to uh, the liberation of hostages. For me, the question of the liberation of hostages is absolutely essential from the human point of view. I had the the possibility to receive several hostages, two two hostages in Davos, families of hostages and people knowing them. And I know what the suffering is related to that. So when we have a negotiation in which the release of hostages is in one hand and in which 
different aspects of pauses, his fires, or restoring calm, several different kinds of language were used. When there is a negotiation of this nature, I think it's in the interest of everybody. And it's in the particular interest of the government of Israel to make sure that these negotiations are successful. Let's hope they're listening. That's uh, Secretary General of the United Nations, Antonio Guterres. Michael Reed on LMFM. I'm well-meaning, and I'm an elderly man, and I know what the hell I'm doing. I've been president, I put this country back on its feet. I don't need his recommendation. It's How totally bad out. is your memory, and can you continue as president? My memory is so bad, I let you speak. That's, uh, that's, that's my memory has gotten worse, Mr. No, look, president? my memory is not good. My memory is fine. My memory, take a look at what I've done since I've become president. None of you thought I could pass any of the things I got passed. How'd that happen? You know, I guess I just forgot what was going on. For, Mr. President, for months when you were asked about your age, you would respond with the words, watch me. Watch Many me. American people have been watching, and they have expressed concerns about your age. That is they, your judgment. They, that is your is judgment. That is not the judgment concerns. of the press. They express concerns about your mental acuity. They say that you are too old. Mr. President, in December, you told me that you believe there are many other Democrats who could defeat Donald Trump. So why does it have to be you now? What, what is your answer to that question? Because I'm the most qualified person in this country to be president of the United States and finish the job I started. Yes, uh, Joe Biden speaking to reporters uh, last week, uh, defending his candidacy for uh, the presidency of uh, the United States. Uh, he will be running, of course, and uh, he sounded very confident uh, and indeed forceful in arguing back to reporters following on from uh, that report with special counsel Robert Hur, uh saying that he, he wouldn't. Uh, be uh, charged with mishandling classified documents uh, because he is an elderly man with poor memory apart from other reasons. Let's speak to Larry Donnelly, law lecturer at the University of Galway and political columnist with the journal.ie. Good morning, Larry. Thank you indeed uh, for joining us. Robert Hurst's comments in this uh, report on these documents will surely be very damaging to Biden's campaign. Yeah, there's no doubt about it, Michael. It's done massive damage to Biden's candidacy. Uh, You know, look, all the things that the American people had long suspected, you know, and and again, 73 percent of Americans uh, have doubts about Joe Biden's uh, stamina and capacity and mental mental and cognitive uh, abilities. Uh, Now, the reality is Robert Hur, in my view, really shouldn't have included this section. He's not a doctor. Uh, And he was asked to make a determination as to whether uh, there should be criminal charges brought against uh, the president. Uh, He he was there to make that determination on the merits, not on whether a jury would have sympathy for, uh, as he put it, I think, an older man with with difficulty remembering things. So it was beyond his remit, in my view. Uh, But nonetheless, having that uh, down on paper, having seen those words on paper uh, is really damaging. And, you know, behind closed doors, uh, I have no doubt but that Democrats are panicking. Uh, And the issue here is. They knew this was coming. They knew that Joe Biden had serious vulnerabilities, but the leading lights in the party effectively Mm. boxed it off so that Biden could get the nomination. So in many respects, they only have themselves to blame. Yeah, and he did uh, come out fighting. He was angry. Uh, He sounded very 
uh, self-assured and confident uh, when he was responding to reporters, uh, but he, he went on to make an awful gaffe, didn't he? Yeah, this is where he misidentified uh, the president uh, of Egypt as the president uh, of Mexico. And that was with reference to ongoing events uh, in Gaza. Uh, And, you know, with that one word, he arguably undid whatever good he might have done by, as you say, uh, angrily rebutting the charges made uh, by Robert Hur and asserting that, uh, you know, his mental acuity is fine. Uh, I should also note, it's interesting to watch Democrats pushing back on this. They're both saying that, you know, Biden is in good mental condition. But at the same time, they keep pointing to Donald Trump and his numerous missteps uh, and also, you know, everything we know uh, about Donald Trump and saying, look, you know, Joe Biden might have, you know, memory slip ups, et cetera, but Donald Trump does X, Y and Z. And and that's fine, uh, Michael. But this is the issue that they're overlooking. Donald Trump's greatest political strength is that he plays the game by different rules to everybody else. So they can keep reiterating what everybody already knows uh, about Donald Trump. But it doesn't make a blind bit of difference. The mm. reality is uh, Biden does uh, is held to a different standard by the American people. Uh, and that's the sad reality of the situation. And that's what they're up against. And that's why they have so much legitimate cause for concern uh, about their potential nominee. If the next president of the United States is either Joe Biden or Donald Trump, the next president is going to be the oldest president in history, I I think. Uh, Would it be true to say that of the two, the perception is that Joe Biden is too old uh, with more people than would be the case with Trump? Yes, the, the, the opinion polling is quite striking on this front. I mean, as I said, it's around 72, 73 percent who have real doubts about Biden's capacity. Uh, in terms of, of Trump, uh, even some of the people who loathe Donald Trump, they don't have the same doubts uh, about his mental or cognitive uh, abilities. The numbers on him uh, are, are in the 40s. So it's a very, very different scale. And again, that comes back to what I said a minute or two ago, is that People just don't care. Donald Trump can do whatever he pleases. Uh, It just doesn't seem to stick to him. Mm. And if Donald Trump is going to be the next president, in part because of the reasons we've been discussing to do with age, uh, that will worry a a lot of people. If people are worried about that prospect, I think they probably became a lot more worried over the weekend when they heard him say this. One of the presidents of a big country stood up and said, well, sir, uh, if we don't pay and we're attacked by Russia, will you protect us? I said, you didn't pay? You're delinquent? He said, yes, let's say that happened. No, I would not protect you. In fact, I would encourage them to do whatever the hell they want. You got to pay. You got to pay your bills. And the money came flowing in. Okay, uh, <laughs> he certainly speaks with confidence, doesn't he, Larry? Uh, but is there any sense in what he's saying? Because he's actually talking about what countries spend on military defence and that it should be at least 2% of GDP. If countries don't do that, most NATO countries apparently don't, uh, he's saying you're on your own against the Russians. Yeah, I mean, let, let's look at that, that statement, uh, I, I suppose, first on the merits and then on the politics. Uh, on the merits... Uh, What he said after, in fact, in saying that I'd encourage them to do whatever the hell they want, uh, that is an objectively appalling, appalling uh, statement, an invitation, effectively, uh, to Russia to do whatever they want, to use military force against 
uh, countries that are our allies. And I think a lot of people are nervous, uh, and rightly so. It was an unhinged comment. There's no question about it. Uh, but let's, on, on the politics, uh, here's the thing. Uh, I think that that statement will be used against them. I think some Americans will uh, not like it. Uh, but those people probably weren't going to vote for Donald Trump anyway. Uh, I'd also say that if he stopped after before he said, in fact, and encouraged the Russians to do whatever the hell they want, if he stopped there and simply said, look, if you're delinquent, we're not going to come to your defense, the vast majority, not just the Trump people, but the vast majority of Americans would 100 uh, percent agree with that statement because uh, Americans are very, very tired uh, of their kids being the ones who go off to fight wars. Uh, and the perception is that the Europeans don't don't carry their weight, don't pull their weight. Uh, and that Americans would say, look, you you deal with your problems, you deal with your issues. And this very same sentiment is is in the background, when we hear lots of Republicans saying we don't want to fund Ukraine, because an awful lot of Americans would say that's a European problem. Let the Europeans deal with it. Mm, OK, well, it didn't go down well uh, with Europeans. And I, I think it's raised some concern as well about American troops uh, who may be got in the, the crossfire. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's these are these are very difficult times. Uh, in terms of America-EU relations. Uh, Trump is, I suppose, the vulgar, radical end of it, though, Michael, I, I would say to you, because of what I said a minute ago about American sentiment, whether you have a Republican or a Democrat in the White House, uh, the idea of the United States being this kind of interventionist, activist force uh, around the world, uh, that's just not going to be the case anymore. And the reason is that most Americans really are opposed to that. And to be frank, if you look at recent history uh, of failed American military interventions, uh, they have pretty good reason uh, to believe that. And indeed, a lot of Americans, even those who are who are good minded, who are well disposed to uh, Europe and European relations, they would make the point that, look, wherever we've gotten involved, we've only made things worse. So again, that sentiment is going to run in the backdrop uh, of American foreign policy for a long time to come. Okay. Uh, uh, rarely that a day goes by that we don't talk about the atrocities taking place in, in Gaza. And of course, there's huge concern uh, about what's happening in Rafa at the moment, uh, where so many people are just targets in the sand, in the mud, in a refugee camp, uh, waiting uh, to see what happens next. Joe Biden, the American president, uh, spoke with uh, the Israeli prime minister uh, and said to him apparently that this Israeli plan, uh, the next phase of the offensive, shouldn't proceed without a plan to ensure the safety of 1.4 civilians uh, who are, are trapped in, in the region. But it seems as though the offensive was underway as that conversation was taking place. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think what's happening there is monstrous. It's horrifying. Uh, I think people around the world that look at it and, and they're just revolted. Uh, the reaction of Israel to what happened to the horrific events uh, of October 7th at this stage uh, are so grossly disproportionate. Uh, and, you know, speaking a, a, as an American, it really does horrify me uh, that we continue to spend, you know, so, to send aid or try to send aid and be so committed uh, to Israel and not take more affirmative action uh, to call this out, to demand an immediate ceasefire. Uh, but I'm afraid, Michael, uh, political realities in the United States 
uh, are such that uh, Joe Biden and the Democrats are really in a difficult, difficult position. And I hate to say that this comes down to politics, but uh, the reality is that it does. All right. The unfortunate truth. Larry, thank you indeed for joining us as always. Larry Donnelly is a law lecturer at the University of Galway and a political columnist with uh, the journal .ie. Now, if you want to make comment, 0419832000, text or WhatsApp 0861800658, email michael at lmfm.ie. Michael Reed on LMFM. Well, as you've been hearing in uh, the bulletins uh, this morning, over 100 community activists from right across the country met in Dublin on Saturday to launch a new group called Communities Against Racism Ireland, or CARI for short. Let's speak uh, to a spokesperson for CARI, Helena McCann, who's on the line. And uh, a very good morning to you, Helena, and thank you indeed for joining us on uh, the programme uh, this morning. You say the objective of your group is to combat the far-right rhetoric that we've become so accustomed to at this stage. Tell us a a little bit more about your objectives. Hi, good morning, Michael, and thanks for having me on. Um, Yeah, so we... Last year, DCAR, Dublin Communities Against Racism, was launched in response to what was happening in East Wall. And um, it, it became quite apparent that this was going to spread outside of Dublin, and into more rural areas especially. So we, we felt that it was there was a need for support and um, kind of a network of support for people in these areas who want to stand against, for, for the most part, external far-right agitators coming into their communities, stirring up hate and fear, mm. and then leaving. But what was, what was happening, what we were seeing was happening was that these communities were then being torn in two and it was leaving people feeling very isolated. So we, we just we felt that we needed to come forward and offer support, a support network. Right, uh, because uh, the story that the far right is telling seems to be a good story and is gaining traction with some people uh, who are buying into the lies and the misinformation that they spread. Yeah, exactly. The biggest motivator for any person is fear. And the far right have become very good at spreading fear through misinformation and outright lies. Mm. And they're, they're, they're extremely well versed in using social media to, to do this. And while we can understand people in communities being fearful, we've come through a very long period of austerity. People are struggling. And now you're telling them you have to share even more. There's a fear there that we can understand. Yeah. But the far right are stirring it and, and, and fabricating lies for their own gains because they don't care about these communities that they're going into. Mm. They don't care what happens in these communities or how they're tore apart. All they care about is what they can gain from their actions. Yeah, I'm sure they... Uh, don't care about their communities if they're going in and burning down buildings. Uh, the biggest weapon that they seem to be using and the one that instills most fear in people is that every single man who was born outside of Ireland is a rapist or a potential rapist. It's ridiculous, really. It, it's actually disgusting to hear people that... And it, it's gone mainstream now. We, we hear... It's not too far in, in England. We hear... 
MPs using the same rhetoric as we're listening to the far right on social media groups. Mm. And, and when it's gone that mainstream, um, it, it, there is a struggle. We, we have to change the narrative. We have to, um, we have to stop people for, just for a second so they can think, like, you know, is this really how I want to live? Do mm. I want to live on fear? Or do I want to actually look around and see how I can make things better for everyone in my community? Yeah. Uh, I was telling our our listeners on Friday uh, about a man that I know, uh, a young man who is of military age, who has moved into a community and he hasn't been vetted. Worse still, Helena, this young man uh, is single. Uh, and God knows what threat he, he poses <laughs> to people. Uh, and uh, I just hope uh, that uh, the people in the city he's living in are not like some of uh, the people that we've seen here who vilified other people because they're single uh, and of so-called military age and unvetted and all that stuff. Because I'm talking about my son who's living in a foreign country. Exactly. We, we have the privilege sending our kids right across the world to anywhere they wish, anywhere they dream of going as economic migrants, as unvetted males of military age, in the knowledge and in the safety of knowing that our kids, just by looking at them, they're going to be accepted. But yet we feel that we're, we're okay here standing in Ireland saying, no, we don't want you. Like, it's the complete hypocrisy of Irish people at the moment. Not Not the majority, mm. the minority of Irish people. Yeah, but then That's people the will people will counter that, won't they? I'm sure you've heard it uh, many times, Selena. People will counter that by saying, "Well, look, if it was a, a group of twenty or thirty men from Roscommon or Derry or pick any corner of Ireland." Uh, I'd be equally concerned. It's not that they are from a different country. It's that it's a big group of men that are coming in here. Uh, you hear that a lot. Yeah, you, you hear that a lot. But the, the fact of the matter is that there's not. If we actually, if we break down the numbers and if we look at the numbers of people coming in versus the people that are leaving, there, there's not vast ways. I I will say that how the government have handled. This, and especially with the massive influx of Ukrainian refugees who are who are fleeing horrible situations, how the government have handled it has it's laid the playing field wide open for the far right to take advantage of it. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff: shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. But saying that, we're not seeing vast waves of any nation moving and descending on Ireland. Like, I know we're, we're a brilliant country, we're a lovely country, but everyone knows we have our problems. Mm. And, and what we're seeing is it's, it's, it's been replicated right throughout the world at the minute because we're coming out of us, we're not coming out of us, sorry. we're in us, sorry. we have been for years, we're in a cost of living crisis, so people are looking for where to lay the blame. 
And unfortunately, they're deciding they're going to lay the blame on the less well off, the the, the, the bottom of the rung, because that's what immigrants of any nation, any colour or creed are. Hmm. They're on the bottom of the ladder, and it's sometimes it's easier to punch down, and that's what we're seeing here. Absolutely, and we are a nation of immigrants. Uh, yeah. This is uh, the country where most people have had to leave. Uh, in order to be able to live, uh, as uh, people will remember exactly. from their history books, because of the famine or or, or uh, in less dire circumstances, pretty much the same scenario in the 50s, uh, to a lesser degree in the 70s and 80s. Uh, but uh, we left in our droves then as economic migrants. Uh, what we're talking about here predominantly is people who are fleeing war, torture, uh, and uh, all sorts of discrimination in t- other countries. Uh, there doesn't b- seem to be the same uh, concern, if that's the word, or opposition, probably a better word, uh, from the far right to Ukrainians. Uh, or is that just uh, what I'm led we, to believe? We, well, we, we hear that. We can only go on what we hear. And we hear constantly at these protests lines like, well, I wouldn't mind if they were Ukrainians or we were told they were Ukrainians. And yet we should help Ukrainian refugees that are here. And I, I'm lucky enough to have gotten to know some Ukrainian refugees, brilliant people. Um, but we, what's the difference? I, I just would like to ask people in their communities, when they're spouting mm. these lines... Skin colour. we were told. Yeah, exactly, skin yeah. colour. So when people are saying, well, you're racist and you're saying, I'm not racist, I don't, I have, it is, it's completely down to race and skin colour. And the the good and decent people in communities are are now too afraid to speak up because when they speak up, they become the target of these agitators. Mm. So that's where we, that's where we've formed this network Mm. of support. And are you speaking personally? Uh, yeah, I, I, I have personal experience of becoming target, a target. My, myself, my family, my, my minor children have become targets because of the agitation created by external forces within my local community. God, dreadful, dreadful. Uh, well, fair play to you for standing up for what's right and what's proper, what's decent and what you would like to see happen uh, if uh, the roles were reversed, if we were the people uh, fleeing from the British Army, if you like, uh, to wherever, hoping that somebody would take us in uh, and not send us back uh, to uh, be killed or tortured or whatever the case may be, or give us a fair hearing at least. Exactly. And can I I just say one thing? I've noticed in these local um, protests, there's people standing on protest shouting horrible things when they are part of such multicultural... Ireland has become a multicultural nation in the last 20 years, and it's lovely to see. And think about the impact you're having saying these things about new migrants when your friend or your cousin or your sister or your brother is married to someone of colour, is... um, your best friend is a person of colour because I, I, I know myself the impact that it's had on friends of mine who are part of the community for 20 plus years and also all of a sudden are seeing their neighbours standing on these picket lines hmm. shouting abuse because of the colour of people's skin. Yeah, people they don't know. 
And that's that's know. the thing I always wonder about how people have such strong opinions about other people they know nothing about. Helena, thank you indeed. I'm sure we'll be hearing uh, from you again. I hope so anyway. Nice to talk to you today and thanks for joining us. Helena McCann is spokesperson for Communities Against Racism Ireland, otherwise known as CARI. Michael Reed on LMFM. Independent Ireland is uh, the newest uh, political party in the group. It already counts two TDs amongst its ranks. Independents, Michael Collins and Richard O'Donoghue, a third TD, has now joined the group. And uh, let's say a very good morning to Independent TD, Michael Fitzmaurice. And thank you indeed for joining us as always on the programme today. Michael, why is it that you've decided to join this party? Well, Michael, I, I um, be on your programme many a time and I've said um, that if independents don't uh, basically try and put a structure or party together that we would, um, if you look at the make-up of government, or if you have any intention of being in government, um, it's moved, it moved from one to three or four, then it moved to seven or eight, then it moved to twelve. And now it, it probably looks like that you'll never have a one or two party government that will be probably three. And on top of that, the amount of people that come to me and say, I'm not voting for X, Y, or Z, um, and they might say to them, sure, what are you going voting for? And they turn around and they say, well, you know, I don't know. So this opportunity is there at the moment. All right. Uh, and what does it mean? Uh, in terms of the group that uh, you are a, a member of uh, uh, for speaking time in the Dáil, the Independent Alliance. It doesn't you... mean, it. first of all, um, you are classed as an independent in the Dáil terms until an election mm-hmm. comes up yeah. um, and you stay on the group that for speaking time that you're in. Yeah, you have no... Uh, we've, we've checked with the Clan Corner. Okay, right, okay. Um, the independent group, though, uh, is uh, the group that Michael Collins and Richard O'Donoghue belong to. Independent Ireland, yeah. yeah. Uh, and uh, I think a lot of people would look on that group as a group of climate deniers. Uh, and uh, indeed, there's been accusations of racism. Well, first of all, in the line of climate, um, I would class myself as a person that would be very common sense on it. Um, they're not. We're not. They're not climate deniers. Like if media want to try and box someone into a corner, that's fine. But um, you can do an awful lot of things to help the climate without saying that you have to have a national call. Um, you can do an awful lot of things in transport. Like well, I was the person that brought forward the idea of HVO, a quick way, ninety percent reduction in emissions. If government took up that policy, and um, you know, there are so many new technologies in the likes of the agriculture sector that is going to make huge differences um, that we would be, I would call common sense. I don't talk about fairy ideas. I talk about realistic stuff. Um, I come from the soil or from the land and uh, I would know uh, or have a good idea. You're always learning and no one will ever know it all. But you will all, you always um, will be watching for new ideas and farmers, I think, in fairness, and we would be criticised sometimes for taking the sides of farmers. I think farmers, the bashing they're getting at the moment is not acceptable. There is an awful lot of willing farmers out there to do many of many a thing, but you don't uh, use a stick with people, you use a carrot. Mm-hmm. Okay, uh, there was the motion from um, the independent rural group uh, to uh, cap the number of uh, asylum seekers coming to... That was, that was the independent rural group, Michael. That wasn't Mike Fitzmaurice. 
I understand that, but uh, you're getting into bed with those people. Um, do you support that? First of all, in the rural group, in, in, uh, uh, there was, I think, Matty, in fairness, and, and the, the other two guys would have been in that group. But in the line of uh, immigration, we will have a full policy on that. We have done um, age policy documents at the moment, and it will be there for you or for anybody else, and indeed prospective councillors, and mm. that may want to run for Europe. Yeah. Uh, the documents will be there for anyone to look at and decide what you believe in. Let's deal with the documents when they come out and you look at them. Don't be judgmental before that happens. Oh, no, I, I don't mean to be judgmental, but uh, I was going to ask you actually about the election and European elections because that's obviously uh, the first port of call in terms of fielding candidates. Uh, and uh, given that motion that went before the doll, uh, I, I take it uh, that... There will be some candidates uh, attracted to this party, the Independent Ireland Party that you've now joined, uh, who, who may uh, empathise with the idea that there's too many asylum seekers that that, that well, should be kept. First of all, it's you in a little secret, Michael. Okay. Actually, the document that we have done in our policy says if we implement the laws that we have there at the moment, um, it would actually resolve a lot of the issues that's popping up at the moment. But the problem is we are not implementing the laws that we have in this country at the moment. And indeed, I have said, and many one has said, that if I go to America or somewhere else mm. in relation and I don't carry a passport, well, I, I wouldn't even get on the plane in Dublin, to be quite frank about it. Mm. But I definitely wouldn't get off the plane in America. But that's a law in Ireland already. And indeed, I've said already that this idea of people they're deciding that you're to leave the country and the government are now doing what the likes of we, what we said a long time ago, what I said personally, I, I account for myself, um, and what I said personally was that uh, we should be making sure that if someone, when they go through all the due process and are treated fairly, that, uh, that in the end of the day, if they're not allowed to stay in the country, that it should be made sure that they're... That, that they're um, Basically, that they leave the country. Yeah, the they're deported. Yeah. The, the mm. government has mm. now decided that policy, Michael. If you listen to them in the last week, yep. mm. they have actually decided to charter flight. So it's good yep. that they're listening. To well, 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 it's interesting because I asked uh, the minister Helen McEntee uh, if. Uh, she was um, changing policy or if government is changing policy uh, because of how far right arguments are gaining traction. Well, uh, I don't think it's. If you look at the. And we actually had people looking at this. If you look at the laws we have there at the moment, and I've argued this with you on other things mm-hmm. before, mm. uh, there was new drink driving laws coming in, and I said if we implemented what we had, and what do we get after that? 50% uh, less, um, basically, look at our uh, checkpoints. Mm. Um, and this is the same thing. We have a lot of legislation there, Michael, that mm. we don't actually use mm. or that we don't enforce. We don't need to be in reams of new legislation for the, for the simple reason, if we'd done what we said we'd do, uh, if we'd done what we said on the, on the 10, mm-hmm. we'd be 100% But solid. why make it an issue? It's so irrelevant uh, that it's very hard to understand why any politician or political party would make it an issue. Only about 13,000 people came to this country last year outside of the Ukrainians. Yeah, well, I think they're 120,000. That's, the, that's when you include the Ukrainians. In, but in, include no, but, but, uh, there was 30, less than 13,500 people yeah, came to this the, country last year. The first thing is, Michael, that has to be, first thing is that has to be uh, understood. One in four people come from outside the country to work here in this country. 
uh, and give great help in a lot of sectors. And mm. we would fully endorse that. Mm. Um, if we have laws in the country, well, I think you would agree, uh, and everyone would agree that we should be enforced. And it seems mm. to be a fairly topical issue with the general public out there at the moment. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. And, and we need to make sure mm. that uh, we do what we say not leave laws lackadaisical. I know, but, but I it really is every, such... Everyone, everyone Michael, yeah. should always get due process. Mm. We've signed up to certain things in Europe and I don't think there'll be anyone mm. on the side. Yeah, and it. people are deported. But I mean, when if you put it into the context of it being less than 13,500, I can't remember the exact figure, 13,300 and something uh, people who came here seeking international protection, asylum seekers, in other words, uh, and compare that to the 21,000 people who went to Australia from Ireland last year. Yeah, well, it's, sad, it's a sad thing that 21,000 went from Ireland. Yes. And really, really, a lot of the problem is Michael that couldn't afford a house in this country. Mm. Um, and the more, which is very regrettable uh, and a bad statement on our country. On top of that, there's genuine migrants that need help, Michael. And why should we be clogging up the process with other, uh, what I would call economic migrants that would have fair good funding to get here? So we need to make sure that we help those that need help in all cases. Okay. Um, do you uh, have any idea of how many candidates will run in the upcoming elections for independent Ireland? Over the next four weeks, Michael, that yep. will be all decided for the simple reason there's probably 100 councillors that there are prospective councillors mm. and sitting councillors between Edinburgh together that uh, have expressed an interest. And in fairness to any of them, uh, you couldn't expect them to be moving or signing up and entering until you have documents that you can show. Okay, well that of course makes sense. What about TDs uh, like yourself, independent TDs, yeah, sitting TDs? All, uh, other TDs are, be, will, are being, some are being talked to and others will be talked to over the coming month and it's, it's their decision to make uh, what they want to do. Okay, are you in talks with Peter Fitzpatrick? I think some of our I'm listeners will be interested. Michael, I'm not going, I'm not going down a rabbit hole going to name okay. people. I, okay. I show respect to every elected mm. representative and I'm not going to be going out on the... Uh, no one, mm. while I was talking to them, there was no one giving out my name, so I'll show the same respect. Oh, no, that, that's fair enough. Yeah, I'm sure you'll forgive me for asking, though. I think a lot of our listeners will be very interested in and well, they'll be sure watching that space. <laughs> exactly, God loves a trier. Listen, thank you indeed uh, for joining us. Uh, it is significant news and uh, gives uh, some weight to Independent Ireland, uh, a new political party with uh, Michael Fitzmaurice, Independent TD, who we've just been speaking to, joining up uh, alongside Michael Collins and Richard O'Donoghue. So already that's uh, three sitting TDs who are members of that party. Let me uh give you some of uh, the comments that have uh, been coming to us uh, throughout uh, the programme uh, this morning. Patsy in Carrick says Netanyahu is following in the footsteps of Moses. See Numbers chapter 31. Um, I'm not sure, um, Patsy, uh, you've lost me there, I have to say. Maybe other listeners uh, will understand that. Uh, somebody else uh, says, when our kids travel to other countries, they have their documents when they get there, when they get to their destination. Uh, uh, well, isn't that wonderful? That's that, I think that's absolutely wonderful, uh, that you can uh, apply for a passport in this country and you get one. Uh, and of course, you pay for your plane ticket and when you get off the plane you've got all your documents uh, in place uh, indeed if you were going somewhere like the United States where you need a, a visa you'd apply for one 
and you'd get one. That's it's just wonderful. Thanks for making the point. Uh, our listener was making a different point, I think, though, saying that a lot of these men coming here uh, don't have uh, their documents. My question is, why not? Uh, what are they hiding? Nothing to do with skin colour. They're coming from countries that are not at war. Uh, well, some of them are fleeing from persecution or torture, as uh, the case may be, or... Um, I, I, I don't know, try to be uh, gay or lesbian in some of these countries, for example, and uh, see what that does to you. Try to apply for a passport in some of these countries and best of luck to you if you think you'll get one. Uh, and uh, a lot of uh, the people have arrived in other European countries hoping to be reunited with their family who are already here. Um I, I, I don't know uh, why people continuously ask a, a about documentation when it's not possible for people uh, leaving places that are not as comfortable uh, as this country uh, and are hoping that they'll find some sanctuary, that they'll find a warm welcome, that they'll find somebody who will say, you, fe- you need not fear anymore. Um, but thank you indeed uh, for sharing your thoughts with us. I'll come to some more of uh, the comments a little bit later on in the programme. Our phone number 0419832000. Text or WhatsApp 0861800658. Email michael at lmfm.ie. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, the Irish Congress of uh, Trade Unions is suggesting uh, that pay increases uh, for this year should be in the region of between 4 and 6% where affordable. Let's uh, speak to Paddy Malone, Puro with Dundalk Chamber of Commerce. Very good morning to you, Paddy. Thanks for joining us on the programme uh, this morning. How do you think your members will react to that? Are, are increases on that scale affordable, in other words? I think some will be able to do it, but there are others that, that won't. Um, the reality of the situation is, it's like the curate's egg. Some businesses are doing quite well. Some businesses under, are under a, a lot of pressure. Um, so our, our advice to our members will be very straightforward. You know, you, you, you reach an agreement with your, uni, with, with your employees to make sure that everybody is getting a, a fair slice of the cake. But it is going to be difficult. And I mean, one of the things I noticed in the the uh, Congress's recommendations was they were chasing inflation. That's always a bad thing to be doing. It, that's, you know, the argument is, uh, well, this is where I was two years ago. That's not really all that relevant. It's, it's what can the business afford to pay now? And I think that has to be brought into account. Mm. But one of the suggestions that was made worries me from the point of view of the Chamber's own way of working, and that is the use of um, the tax-free exempt proceeds. Now, you, you and I have talked about this a dozen times. This is the voucher scheme that we've pushed for the, for the last number of years. We were the ones that lobbied and got the minister to, uh, got the Taoiseach to increase it two years ago very successfully. He asked me when he was in the dock, what two things would I want? And I said I wanted it twice a year and I wanted it from 500 to 1,000 and we got both. But the idea that this could be used as part of basic pay or salary sacrifice, as it's called, that actually is deliberately ruled out in the legislation. So the unions are going to have to think in other ways. Now, maybe mm. that's a shorter week. I mean, we're already getting to it a situation. It is. Where I think one of the suggestions, shorter working time, increase, increase sick pay or improve pension benefits. Is yeah, and I way? think the shorter working week is something that we're all moving towards. I think my mm. wife might be somewhat surprised to hear me say that, but... Mm. Most people, uh, you notice it yourself on a Friday, the traffic is a lot lighter than it is the rest of the week. Now, that may be partly due to uh, hybrid working of people working at home, 
But I think it's also the fact that people are now beginning to walk slightly less than you know the forty the forty hours of standard walk. I think it's down to thirty five. I think we're, yeah. we're heading toward, towards a thirty hour week, and there might be some flexibility in that area. So what I'm saying is, it's a matter of each employer working out with their employees how best to, to achieve this. Mm. Well, the problem is though, if you don't chase inflation, um, you're effectively taking a pay cut, aren't you? Yes, unless the unless the um, the government comes in and changes the legislation or, or, or gives tax, um, increases the tax credits by more th- than just the, the, the rate of inflation. And to a certain extent, that has been happening um, in relation to... We have one of the most low-paid people in Ireland do not come into the tax net. Our, our, even when we compare ourselves, we're always saying that we're a higher tax rate than the UK. If you're on the basic wage or slightly above that wage, you're actually better off working in the south than in the north. Um, and that comes as a surprise to people. It's the middle group that get hammered. Mm. Uh, and then from there up, it's, 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 it's significantly different. So what we need to see is a better use of the tax system to actually encourage people, uh, encourage young, uh, so that the lower paid are not being, not being taxed unfairly. And I think that's more or less been achieved, but there is still some scope in that area. Mm. Um, but it's the take-home pay that's important, not the gross pay. And I think people need to watch that all the time. Yeah, OK. Um, quite often we uh, get complaints, uh, as I'm sure uh, you're aware, Paddy, uh, uh, from people who are, are giving out that uh, northern contractors are, are working on projects uh, here south of uh, the border. But construction is a particular problem. And I see uh, that Minister Simon Harris has launched a campaign uh, trying to get men and women back to this country to work in construction. Uh, this is going to be a massive campaign. It has a budget of €750,000, uh, but I, I take it that's in line with uh, the scale of need. Uh, and if that need uh, is addressed, we could see an awful lot of construction in the coming years, and God knows we need it in housing, of course. Well, amen to that. I mean, one of the things that Simon Harris did a couple of weeks ago was to give DKIT uh, significantly more funding in relation to apprenticeship scheme, schemes. So, uh, in the re, re, in the area of carpentry and in electronics and in other construction businesses, DKIT has actually increased its uh, um, a bit, uh, availability to students significantly. The LMETB are also stepping up on that market. So it's not that uh, this is something new. Harris has been working on this, as has the construction industry. But what happened was that the construction industry. We had it. We had it very strong in the in the 1910s and uh, 2010, 2011. We were building 50, 60,000 houses mm. a year, and then the bottom fell out of the market. And I think there was a lack of planning to a certain extent, and people drifted away from the construction industry. I think parents discouraged their kids from getting into the construction industry, mm. and we're facing that shortage now. Well, COVID. So, COVID is. A, a, COVID has been a nightmare because yeah. the Eastern Europeans went home who had been working in construction, and if they left their hometown, uh, not they didn't come here necessarily. They might have uh, gone somewhere else, but they did, a lot of them didn't come back here anyway. Yeah, a lot of them didn't, and I think you've got to look and see why, and I think that's probably, uh, based on my own experience of talking with subcontractors, particularly those from Eastern Europe, um, accommodation has been a major problem. They will be back here in the morning with the wage rates that they're they're on, Mm. but they're not going to live in a tent. You know, and I think we've got that sort of chicken and egg situation where if we had the houses, 
we'd get the construction workers, but to get the construction workers, we need the houses. Mm. Um, so I don't think overall wage rates are problems in that area. I think the problem is accommodating those that are coming into the market, uh, 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 those that want to come back. Mm. Um, Indeed, regardless of what you're paid, I think we'd all have more money if uh, the cost of accommodation wasn't what it is in this country, um, whether you're uh, renting or uh, paying a mortgage, as the case may yeah. be. I, I think mm. I think one of the scheme, one of the schemes that the government introduced, most, mostly aimed at students, but it could be used for anybody, is this rent-a-room scheme, whereby if you rent a room in your house, uh, you get f- up to 14000 tax-free. Mm. Um, I mean, it's a good incentive. I know some relatives of mine have done it, um, some have worked out successfully and others have said it was a nightmare that they would never inflict on themselves again. You could be lucky. But it's, it's, it's one of a number of things. Yeah. Nothing's going to fix this on a, a simple panacea. Um, and what I would say to people is wage rates, going back to what we were talking about at the beginning, it's not so much it's, mm. it's the take home that's important. If there can be flexibility around working hours, that's yeah. another thing that could be done. I don't think the voucher scheme is a, is a runner. Uh, and I think the other thing that always has to be said when we're dealing with this region, we have to be cognizant of the wage rates in the north, which are considerably lower. Mm. And uh, very interesting uh, as well to talk about uh, that rent a room. Well, that fourteen thousand—that's what about two hundred and twenty a week or thereabouts. Yeah, like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, I mean, and uh, and people living in council houses now can rent out a, a room to somebody. In some circumstances, that rent, which is two hundred and twenty, let's say, which would be for nothing for uh, renting out somewhere um, if you were looking to rent. But for people uh, who have a council house, uh, it could be multiples of what they're actually paying themselves in rent. It, it could be. I mean, it, it, it is one of those schemes that might work in some cases. I mean, I, I, I've actually seen it argued, not from the point of view of financial, but even from the point of view of, say, an elderly person who's alone, a widow or a widower, and, and they really are lonely 24-7 because there's nobody calling to the house anymore. If they had a larger a student that would put a bit of life back into the house, I think both of them could win in that situation. Mm, indeed. But uh, the other argument against uh, pay increases in line with inflation is that uh, you actually fuel inflation. Uh, would that be uh, something? Yeah, that can... I mean, I, I, I'm old enough and grey enough that I can remember the 1980s when everybody was spending, chasing, it, it was like watching a dog chasing a t- its own tail. It was never going to catch up and all that was going to happen was everybody was going to get sick. It took forever to break that cycle. Uh, and that's what you don't want. And we've got to recognise that inflation is falling and falling quite rapidly. If we could get interest rates down, it would be a major help. And it's disappointing that within the EU we have the highest interest rates. And if that could be if that could be addressed by the government in some way, I don't know how. But we need to see the the banks behaving themselves. And I think. That's one thing that I would really like to see, and we take a lot of pressure, particularly off those with mortgages. I mean, I know the government have introduced mortgage credit, tax credit, to, to alleviate the problem, but really the long-term solution is to tackle the, 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 the whole issue of, of uh, interest rates being far too high. All right, Paddy, we leave it there for the moment. Thank you indeed for joining us uh, this morning. That's uh, Paddy Malone, who's uh, the PRO for the Chamber of Commerce in Dundalk. Let me uh, bring you some more of uh, the comments coming to us. Eamon and Dunlear says 150 people on trolleys. Uh, that was in Limerick uh, the other day. Uh, and non-nationals still coming into the country. Wouldn't we be better getting our own house in order before we start housing others? I suppose the government will label me far right with that comment. 
uh, pretty sad really, isn't it, says uh, Eamon Indunlear. Thanks uh, for your comment, Eamon. Uh, and, you know, you're dead right. I don't think anybody can argue with you. There should never be, let's say, 25 people uh, who were on trolleys in Our Lady of Lourdes uh, last week, never mind 150 people on one day in uh, Limerick. Uh, but that's a, a crisis that we've made uh, and uh, it's one that needs to be solved and that's why we have a vote and we're free to go out and vote and we get the government that we vote for. Uh, there are issues to talk about uh, separate uh, to the immigration issue uh, because what we're talking about is people uh, who are in need of our protection. Uh, we can't turn our back on them uh, morally, but apart from that, uh, we just can't because of the obligations that are, are on the state uh, because of international uh, agreements. Somebody else says, racist me I, Michael, uh, 50 to 100 arriving into a town, no matter what colour, not enough guardie if anything happens, nothing for them to do all day. You seem to forget the trouble caused uh, a while back. Um, I'm not far right, uh, as uh, you call everyone uh, who's worried uh, about uh, this issue. My tr- my son had trouble getting into Australia um, yeah, it was unreal. Uh, that's from a worried pensioner. Thank you indeed. Yeah, well, I, I know, but we still only had 13,000, 13,500 people coming here uh, last year. 21,000, including your son, went to Australia from Ireland. Uh, your son didn't need to go to Australia uh, or else face death here because of a bomb falling out of the sky. Uh, which is the reality of people. I mean, we just say good luck to you or what do we do? Margaret says the IDF, uh, the Israeli Defence Forces, should be called the International Death Fighters and Netanyahu as the head of that death squad is the Hitler of today. He can dress it up any way he likes, but genocide has been committed by him and his army while uh, a lot of the world watches on. It's a disgrace to see what one man is doing to a nation with no consequences for his actions. He, He told the Gazans, go south to be safe. And now he's killing them there too. Did he hear uh, all uh, in the south are, are like lambs to the slaughter? There's no safe place in Gaza for anyone. And Netanyahu knows uh, that and he doesn't care. He wants them wiped out. And yes, what Hamas did was wrong, vile, evil and shouldn't have happened. But not all Gazans are members of Hamas. The Israelis were planted in Palestine in 1948. So who really is the aggressor? I'm not anti-Jew, but I am anti-murder, war and greed. All the world is doing is creating more terrorists by allowing Netanyahu do what he is doing. Thank you indeed uh, for that. Uh, Somebody else uh, in touch with us about the referendums that are are going to take place on the 8th of March. Uh, Thanks uh, for the text. They're asking if we could have a a good debate about it on the programme to hear both sides. Uh, We've had... uh, some talk about the referendums already, but as we get a little bit closer to the 8th of March, uh, that will intensify. I, I think in time, people's interest uh, will start to rise uh, because as we get closer to the voting date, people will be saying, what is it I'm voting on? And maybe we'll be able to fill that void if there is a void, if people are, are, are grappling with whether they should vote yes or no. Uh, as I say, we'll give plenty of coverage to the referendums before 
we are asked to vote on the 8th of March. But thank you indeed for the suggestion to the programme today. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. LMFM. Have you ever experienced somebody having a seizure? It's really a, a frightening thing. I, I thought so anyway. The one time that uh, I witnessed uh, somebody having a seizure, um, I was very glad at the time that I was with somebody who knew what to do and how to respond because I'd have been lost to be completely honest with you. And it's a situation that any of us could find ourselves in. Today, as you've been hearing, is International Epilepsy Day. And given that there's 45,000 people in this country who have epilepsy, uh, it's something that you could encounter. If it ever does happen to you, uh, you're recommended to remember three words. Time, safe and stay. Let's hear a little bit more about what that might mean in terms of your response. Adele Curran is uh, the Training and Quality Manager with Epilepsy Ireland. A very good morning to you, Adele, and thanks for joining us on the programme this morning. I hope I'm not overstating uh, what it is like to witness uh, a seizure, but I I, I really was lost and very taken aback and didn't know what to do. Uh, But maybe you'd um, give uh, some... Uh, explanation as to why you're asking people to remember these three words time safe and stay please yeah thanks a million michael and it is great to i suppose get the opportunity to to speak to people because as you said yes when you see a seizure and you don't know what to do it is you just feel so helpless when in fact when you know the right steps to take it is actually quite easy to manage a seizure and keep somebody safe in the seizure but like that, it is about awareness and Epilepsy Ireland, our aim is to build awareness of it. And as you said, timing, that's the most important thing. So number one, let's time it. When you see something that can look quite traumatic, I suppose, remember the person is unconscious if they're having a big seizure, if they're having one where they're having the jerk and movements. So it does feel like it's a lot longer than what it actually is. In a lot of cases, they're over and done with quite quickly, maybe a minute of the person having that active seizure and then they go into recovery. It's about timing it because we know at five minutes, if you know this person has epilepsy, this is a seizure. Hmm. At five minutes, you're talking, call your ambulance, okay? And that is a very short period of time. It might seem like a a lifetime when it's happening, but it is a short uh, period of time. If, if, if you time it and it's, it gets to the five minutes, then call an ambulance. Uh, but uh, it, you're also hoping that people will try to keep a person safe. How do you go about that when somebody is convulsing? Well, that's it, exactly. And it's about making that space safe around the person because it's it's like human nature. We all want to get in and do something when, in fact, what we need to do to keep the person safe is what's around them that they could injure themselves off. And if the person's having a seizure where they're on the ground, they're potentially banging their head, their face off the ground, and they're not even aware of it. So even at this time of the year, it's great. We all have scarves and hats and jackets and things like that on us. If what happens during the summer and the person's on a hard surface, we're going to use our hand even to put under their head just to protect their head from the, from the ground because they have no control over the, the added injury. So anything that you can safely put under their head, that's mm. going to be soft and that's going to protect them. So keeping them safe, keeping the environment around them safe. So you may need to move people back, move chairs, tables, depending on where you are, of course. And I suppose never put anything into their mouth because while they're going through a seizure with convulsions, 
every muscle in their body is jerking. Mm. And people used to think, oh, they're going to swallow their tongue. Yeah. But that, in fact, is one of the myths. Yeah, and, and worth emphasising because we were all brought up, certainly my generation, we were all brought up uh, told to get a spoon to stop them from, mm. but you don't you don't put anything in their mouth. Nothing into their mouth mm. because, yes, of course, and we would, we do training day in, day out, and it comes up at every session that, well, when we were growing up, that was what we were told to do, whereas now we don't go near the person's mouth whatsoever. And where did that come also, from, Adele? Sorry, just... Uh, do people swallow their tongues or where did that come from? No, it's actually not... We're not capable of swallowing our tongues. As the body is jerking, the tongue is jerking in the mouth as well. So it's making that sound like the person is choking. Right. And that's where that all came from. That's... um the assumption of how it came about because it does it sound it's the hardest part of the seizure to, to listen to I suppose is mm. that jerking of the tongue but even talking about seizures like I'm talking about the one that people would most recognize because it's very physical but there are also other types of seizures where a person just stares completely blankly and looks very similar to somebody daydreaming right. there's another seizure type where the person could be fidgeting with their clothes or smacking their lips or making this sound with their, with their mouth and maybe nodding their head, fidgeting their clothes. And that's another type of seizure where they don't lose awareness fully when they're doing the fidgeting with the clothes. Yeah. But when somebody zones out and has an absence, they're completely unconscious. But yet, there's no jerking. They're not lying on the floor mm. or anything like that. So there are different and types of Will it be obvious? Well. Uh, I, mean, that, that, I think that seems to be um, a, a very good use of the word an absence. There's an absence. They're not, they're, yes. they're not there uh, as they should be or, or ordinarily. But um, does that mean that you will always notice that? Not necessarily, unless it's, it's really obvious if you're in the middle of a conversation or the person is talking to you and you see that glazed over look or their mm. eyes kind of turned to the side. And if somebody's having these, they could be only for seconds, so they're not going to be very obvious. If you call them, they're not going to respond. Whereas if somebody's daydreaming and thinking about what they're going to have for dinner later on, if you call them, they're going to turn around and answer, yeah, sorry, what were you saying to me? Yeah, it was all from my own world there. Yeah, yeah. it's not that you're off in your own world, it's just that you're not there. Oh, no, completely unconscious during a seizure. And I think if you do notice that you're staying with that person to keep them safe, because that's the stay part of the time make sure it doesn't go over five minutes if you don't know the person you're going to ring an ambulance because you don't know what it is make it safe and stay with them until you notice that that person is back with you they're doing okay and recovery the seizure might be a minute recovery could be for 5 10 15 minutes whatever the time may be Mm. just to make sure that they're okay they haven't injured themselves and like you need to i suppose know that the person is safe. That's the main thing. Is is there a risk of a second seizure? Should somebody stay with you all night? uh, Not necessarily, but if if the person has recovered and you know this person and they're going to sleep it off for a couple of hours and go home, check in with them, there may be somebody living with them, so they're going to obviously Mm. um, support them as well. But in a lot of cases, um, they would not go on to have a second seizure. But if they do have a second seizure, straight away, Start your timing and call for an ambulance because okay. that would be a medical emergency then. Okay. But let's say in the rarer 
yeah. cases that would happen, yeah. Uh, and any time you have a seizure, you're off the road. It's a, a year before you can drive again, isn't it? And uh, we have this announcement now today uh, that you'll qualify for the free transport scheme uh, to mark International Epilepsy Day. Uh, I take it that's welcome news. Oh, that's exceptionally welcome. From an Epilepsy Ireland perspective and even from being a family member of somebody with epilepsy, this is a huge situation where people have been off the road not able to access their car. They could have a car sitting outside and they have to walk past it. And even that announcement today, while we knew it was coming since the budget last year, I think it's very nice that it was done and officially announced today by Minister Humphreys. And people will be able to start applying for that scheme if they're off the road. And epilepsy is one of the reasons why a person could be off the road for 12 months. Mm. So we are really thankful that that's going to be implemented in July this year. Okay, Because it's something that Epilepsy Ireland had been advocating for for years. Okay, I have to leave it there. I've run out of time. Thank you very much indeed, though, for joining us this No morning. problem. Thanks, Thank Mike. you. That's Helena McCann, spokesperson. Uh, oh, I beg your pardon. Adele Curran. I beg your pardon. Adele Curran is the training quality manager with Epilepsy Ireland. That's our programme for today. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com.